Welcome back to our Weird History episode, where we seek to bring you tales of the strange and unusual throughout history. What are we talking about this week? Uh, you know, I hadn't exactly figured out how to set this one up. Uh, it will be a two-parter. This one has so many twists and turns and surprises you won't see coming. So much insanity and it's crazy it's just straight up crazy what i'm going to do because lauren never knows what i'm going to talk about when we do these i'm going to break with tradition and instead of telling you who the person is i'm talking about like we did for the last one with wilhelmina fleming and i told you she was the scottish maid who became an astronomer i'm not telling you about this person that I'm going to tell you about. I'm not going to tell you why she's famous. I'm going to save that for part two. What? And lead into it because you will not expect it coming. And I want, no, no, no. I'm leaving at you and everyone listening in absolute suspense until part two. Which is tomorrow. It'll go out the next day, yeah. Fine, fine. Not happy about it though. Oh, you will be. (laughs) About you leaving me in suspense? No. But you'll be, I want to genuinely see if you can figure out where the story goes before I get there. And you won't, but I want to know if you probably will. Well, I probably won't. (laughs) All right. So... Today we are talking about a woman that probably no one has maybe heard of, partly because she's from the 1800s, but partly because, I don't know, it's just, I feel like she ought to be relevant, 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 I know, I'm like, God damn it, it's not right, yeah. She, I feel like she ought to be relevant in politics, but she's not. But an utterly fascinating biography and one of the craziest I think I've ever heard. We are talking about a woman named Victoria Woodhull. And you will never figure out where this story goes until we get there. I thought you weren't telling me who the person was. No, I won't tell you why she's famous. Oh, I got confused. I mean, she's famous for several reasons, but I won't tell you why she's name mainly famous for, but until part two. So to start off, while in the service of the governor of Pennsylvania, her mother, Anna Roxana Roxy Hummel, met Victoria's father, Reuben Buckman Buck Claflin. And I will be referring to them both as Roxy and Buck because those were their nicknames. So Buck was a horse thief, gambler, and counterfeit moneymaker, an all-around snake oil con man. Great way to start that. And when Buck came into town, he immediately, immediately became close friends with the governor's son, And they would often be seen around town 
gambling and womanizing. Now, while Roxy would be hanging out with Buck, he taught her various card tricks and also how to tell fortunes in order to make money. But more like how to figure out tells and muscle tells and things like that to give people fortunes and make some money. So once she got good at this, Roxy would charge one penny per reading and then would end up with several women in line to come see her for her to tell her their fortunes. Now, eventually, because Roxy, Buck, and the governor's son were often seen together and often... romping around with each other, eventually Roxy became pregnant and it's believed that Buck is the father. And between 1825 and 1837, in 12 years, she would give birth to six children. That's horrifying. One child every, give or take two years, yeah. Imagine six kids two years apart every time. Well, it doesn't end with six. <sighs> it's a large, this family gets large. <laughs> so the first two, Delia and Odessa, they would die as infants. It's the Victorian times and from mortality is pretty high. Margaret Ann, Polly and Malden would live until adulthood. Malden being the only son. And eventually the family would move from Pennsylvania to Homer, Ohio. While there, Buck would continue his life as a con man and Roxy would continue to read palms and fortunes to make money as well. Now, also around this time, this is about the 18, late 1830s, early 1840s. There's a bunch of different sects of religion going on. You don't just have Protestant and Catholicism. You have Mormonism starting up, revivalism, spiritualism, and a whole slew of others. And though Roxy and Buck weren't particularly religious, they did take part in revivalism and spiritualism eventually. And revivalism is Nice way to describe it is it's kind of like a religious fair and people would come and they would hear really charismatic preachers and sermons and it would really motivate people into a very big tizzy and a lot of fornication would happen. Another movement going around the same time is the movement of free love, which Sounds like something from the 60s, and it's similar to what came from the 60s, except it started in the 1830s. And what free love, particularly at the time, rather than just have sex with anyone that you want, whenever you want, which was actually part of it, it was also of, I am, as a person of this country, free to live my life the way I want to. And if I, even if I'm married, I should have the right to go out and be with someone else, have open relationships, open marriages. If I 
choose not to have children that is my choice and a whole bunch of just everything kind of tied in so free love was kind of more of free choice and then what became mostly like the later on in the hippie movements and both roxy and buck were very big fans of the free love movement as well as revivalism and by this time that they moved to Harmer, Ohio, both of them had taken part in revivalism for several years now. And they also had been touting their trades for several years. In 1838, about a year or so after they moved to Ohio, they took part in yet another revival as a pastor of the town. During this particular revival, both Roxy and Buck became so impassioned at this revival that they snuck behind a tent, had some fun, and Roxy very soon found herself pregnant again. Oh, the joys of life. <laughs> and this would be the story that Victoria is told on how she was conceived. And Victoria would be born. September 23rd of 1838. And as she grew up, this is very consistent with a lot of things going on at that time. Uh, I guess it throughout history, really. Um, she would suffer consistent child abuse at the hands of both her parents. And also her siblings would suffer quite a lot of abuse by their parents. Her mom, would also claim to heal her children via the use of mesmerism, which was a new practice at the time and named after mesmer and how we get the word mesmerize. So in a sense, mesmerism and spiritual healing at the time, there was, it's kind of like, and I don't mean this in a bad way. It's just the only analogy I can think of, like Reiki, where you're using energy or even hypnosis in a sense, which mesmerism was kind of a pre-hypnosis to channel the energies of another person, like psychic healing in a sense, might be a better than Reiki in terms of an analogy. Now, eventually the child abuse by the parents would eventually get to her elder brother, Maudlin, or sorry, Malden, and he would eventually escape the family run away and never return i don't exactly blame him no not at all uh unfortunately this does not seem to be a choice for the rest of the, the children which were all girls and 1841 and 1842 roxy would also give birth to two more children so now we're talking nine in total this would be, well, nine in total, not all surviving. This would be Utica and a newborn brother that had died shortly after birth. Now, as the children grow up, they would be at home with their mom and doing chores around the house and helping her make what was known as Buck's Life Elixir. What? What? What was the name? Buck's life elixir 
keep in mind her father buck is a snake oil con con man right and a lot of things back then. i mean we didn't have the fda until i think the late 40s maybe early 50s a lot of this uh medicinal regulation of things didn't happen until the turn of the century so at this time and throughout most of history you could put a whole slew of stuff whether it's poisonous or not you could put it into something you called a tonic or an elixir and pass it off as medicine and no one would know because you weren't required to put an ingredients list on it and no one regulated anything it's just like saying i'm a doctor but i don't have a degree but i can claim to be a doctor and you're not able to check up on that so yeah that's buck's life elixir now but the elixir itself was sold at one dollar a bottle in 1838 and or sorry by by the mid 1840s and the elixir consisted of laudanum molasses various herbs for smell and of course alcohol on top of the laudanum which is opiates this is a very common combination back then. And this really wasn't so much the problem. It's the alcohol that was more, I guess, that, you know what, you know what, aside from having the kids work on creating Buck's Life Elixir, you would end up, or Utica would end up very quickly. We're talking five and six, maybe seven years old tops very quickly becoming addicted to the elixir that her mother had helped her make. And this addiction would last from her childhood up until her death many, many years later. That's sad. This whole family is kind of sad. It's tragic, it's sad, it's crazy, it's suspenseful, it's twisty, turny. It's a whole, this is just, just fascinating. Now, because of there's both of her parents' lives and the fact that they often went hungry because Buck is selling con oil stuff and can't always necessarily make a lot of money. Roxy's only doing so much with her fortune telling while she's also trying to raise six surviving children. So they didn't always have enough food and often the children would go off to neighbors houses and beg for food and apparently at one point they'd been singled out by the community as people not to hang around with and in fact at one point after they sort of were singled out by the community it, the parents of the neighbors told their children that if they were caught uh, playing with the Chaplin or the Claflin children, they would get a beating for disobeying them. And like this, this family, not good. If I find out that you're playing with them, uh, you're getting to take them back to the shed with a belt. That's all terrible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, here's a small small silver lining to that 
Victoria was not typically the, the one who would go begging. And one day she would actually go over to a neighbor's house and not asking if they had any food, she asked if there was any chores that she could do. And the family told her that we didn't have any chores to get done, but they happened to have an aunt who was staying with them. And at this time, Victoria was seven years old and the aunt of the neighbor took pity on Victoria. And over the next year, she would teach Victoria how to read and write because the children never had formal education. They couldn't afford it. Also, even if they could, let's admit that they never would. Yeah, give it, give it the parents. Yeah, they wouldn't put them in school. But this is also around the same time that most girls didn't get higher than what, like fifth grade education tops, or at least here in America. Women weren't seen as needing to be educated. Why would we need that? No, I know, no. Now, what's really interesting and will play out definitely much later, particularly in part two, is it became very clear to the aunt as she's tutoring Victoria that Victoria has a very good knack for memorizing things. And in fact, it's possible Victoria may have even had a photographic memory because she could recall things in detail after having seen and or read them just once or twice. She could look at a page of text in a book and skim through it just once or twice and could recall all details on the book or at least on that page. Smart kid. Yeah. Victoria, out of the rest of her family, was the smartest. That is absolutely for sure. Well, that and her sister, Tennessee, which will come a little later. Now, unfortunately for Victoria, she only got the one year of tutoring because the aunt died due to cholera the following year. This, however, would be a major turning point in Victoria's life as well. Victoria, very deeply upset, went to the orchard nearby and in her despair and her grief, not knowing what to do because she's just lost this one constant kind person in her life, she in her biography, I guess it was a biography, and in her recalling of the story, at least, she says that she fell to the ground in the orchard, now she's eight years old, and something unexpected happened. Right before her eyes, she said that she began to see what she described as spirits. And in this vision that she was having, she saw the aunt who just passed away, carrying her Victoria into the spirit world. And within this vision, Victoria then met Demosthenes, who's an ancient Greek philosopher and father of Athenian thought and philosophy. She also, you'll love this one, claims that in this vision when she's eight years old, met Napoleon and Josephine. And all three of these spirits that she claims to have seen, then tell her that she is much more in this life and will have much more to give and to do in this life than she may not even yet to realize. And that all three of them will be her spirit guides throughout her life, guiding her. 
That's a lot to get in one message. Especially for an eight-year-old who's never supposedly had visions before. And then also, you know, Napoleon and Josephine. Uh-huh. And an ancient Greek philosopher she probably never heard of. Now, this would be the first of the visions Victoria would have in her lifetime. And she would have them off and on throughout the rest of her life. Now, however, she's not the only person in her family to also have visions. Turns out her mother was known to also have visions. The mother after, so Victoria went home and told her mother about the vision that she had had. And at this point, her mother then tells her that she's also capable of having visions and before Victoria was even born, she had a vision that one day her daughters would rise from poverty and amass a great fortune. Pretty good vision. Now, her mother was incredibly happy hope. with this. Sorry, go ahead. That, I was just saying, that's a lot of hope that to put on a vision. Well, if you got that many kids and one of them is pretty smart, you never know where it's going to go. You never know what kind of luck befalls people. Now, Roxy was really happy that Victoria is now able to have these visions because it means that the Roxy's gift for having visions has now been passed on to her daughter. And her father was also ecstatic for this, but not for the right reasons. Whether he believed that they were true or not, child preachers had become all the rage in America at the time. A lot of fire and brimstone. Um, Think like a child version of Joel Olstein. A lot of this revivalism, a lot of child preachers, you know, talking about that I, I have a channel to God and you must follow what I say because I'm a child and I, I am therefore an innocent. So my word of what God says is true. You should believe me. And Buck would very quickly bank on victoria's visions whether believing that he his, his so whether or not buck believed his daughter actually had gifts again he's a con man so he does the first thing that pops in his head and exploits victoria and her possible gifts as a way to make money for the family um, and crowds would come to see them so not only was obviously Buck charismatic, Victoria would then become a foray into public speaking, even if she didn't necessarily always enjoy it. And during this touring, at one point, she is quoted as saying, I am the words, sinners repent. Listen to me, for I know things you do not know. I can cure, I can smite. Yeah, I just, I have to take that in. Before. Well, again, child preachers were all the rage. So this is kind of the stuff that they would pronounce. It just seems so, I, I, I can't think of the right word right now, but ridiculous is not it, but it's in that zone. <laughs> it's about to get way more ridiculous. I'm only scratching the surface on the early life of Victoria Woodhull. First section is just on her early life. Oh, Lord. I'm sorry. Part one is just on her early life. She had a life like no one I've ever heard about. 
and not just because she's a woman, just literally like no life I probably have ever heard about. So her dad's taking her around town, proselytizing that his daughter has gifts and channel to God. So one year in 1847, while he's taking her around, he has a really great idea. He's going to ensure the grist mill that he had bought some years before, and not, no one's really sure what grist mill is, it's a mill where you take, I think it's oats and you turn it into flour or something to that, that effect, I believe. And wanting money, because he's a con man, he has the bright idea to insure his mill that he had bought for $4,000. And what do you think happened to the mill? It broke down and didn't function. No, he insured it. So what do you think happened to the mill? Oh, he set it on fire. Yes, he did. Shocking. Yeah. yeah. Now, he did set it on fire, but the insurance company could not conclusively say that he specifically did it and claimed it to be an accident. So they paid the money out to Buck. And what does Buck do? Gambles it away. Nope. Is it on something else? Nope. Okay, what? Takes it and run. Oh, of course. Not just run. He doesn't take it with his family and runs. He no, takes he, it. he runs. Just, just yeah, him he runs. runs. He abandons his family, right? Yeah, abandons his very large family, takes the $4,000 and runs out of town. But that's also not the only thing that he did before he ran out of town. Turns out, while he was running the grist mill, he'd also gained the position of postmaster in the small town of Homer at the time. Not sure how he got that election, but he got elected to the position of postmaster. And after he left, the citizens of Homer had gone to the post office wondering where their mail was and found every piece of mail and the post office opened and any mail that was sent to either sent in or sent out that had had money in it buck had removed the money and taken that with him too surprise surprise not really nope <laughs> yeah so not only does the family have a bad reputation give or take because of their poverty and it's a large brood of children and the mother claims to tell fortunes and the dad is a snake oil salesman. And now the father's run out of town taking a load of money with them, as well as robbing the citizens of Homer, at least from whatever they had at the post office. He, as I mentioned, left his family in the dust. Surprisingly though, the town of Homer did something unexpected, sort of. They decided that they were gonna hold a fair and during the fair, the women of the Christian movement in town made a show of raising money to give to the family, but had one stipulation. The family could have this adequate amount of money to live on, but they had to move out of town. Not surprising. That's kind of fair. Though. I'm not, I'm not surprised. I mean, they basically got robbed and destroyed by buck and of course they're associated with him so yep 
Now, luckily for Roxy and her children that she had with her, the eldest daughter, Margaret Ann, had recently just gotten married and lived not too far away from Homer, Ohio. So her mom and all the siblings moved in with her eldest daughter and her new husband. Yikes for the new husband. Especially because of what happened not long after that. Not long afterwards, the family finds themselves booted out of that house too because the husband, newly married, has now found his wife in a hotel with another man. But keeping in mind, mom and dad have touted to their children about the free love movement and that you should be free to have relations with whomever you wish, whatever you want. And they were setting off fireworks. This is great. At the same time that they get booted out of Margaret Ann's house, not long after having moved in, the, el- the second eldest daughter, Polly, also recently got married. Keeping in love, keeping in mind this free love movement, I can have relations with whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. Polly, I think, is a little unstable, to be fair, and you'll understand why in just a second. Not long after marrying her new husband, her husband immediately files for divorce because Polly's crazy. Polly claimed that her husband actually filed for divorce because their newborn had gotten sick and died, and he wanted to leave Polly all alone having just recently given birth the new husband wanted polly to divorce polly because polly's crazy and she's got a crazy family and the family moved in with him polly also claims in her testimony for the divorce that she gave birth to a stillborn child and then afterwards followed her husband around town for two days while carrying said dead child and harassing her husband around town that's disgusting bury your baby polly's crazy that's an understatement with this family now one bright shining light in victoria's life would be the following year in 1848 one of so that so tennessee celeste is the second youngest child Utica being the youngest daughter. Victoria's sister, Tennessee Celeste, also gone by Tenny, is sent to live with relatives in Pennsylvania because now the family is so large, the family cannot look after and feed her properly. Now, not long after moving in with her relatives, Tennessee reveals that she has a, quote, gift for reading minds and predicting fires. Yeah, it's a little strange. And if you remember Buck's excitement when finding out that Victoria can have visions, now he's got two daughters. And immediately Buck comes back to the family, also brings Tennessee back with them to Ohio and says, now I've got two of them. And he acquires a wagon, has both Tennessee and Victoria in the wagon doing their child preaching and on the side, which will be a theme for Buck, writes Wonderful Child on it. And at the time of the touring with Tennessee, both children are now 10 and six years old. 
I just keep slapping my forehead at this story, just like, dear Lord, this actually happened. Again, just scratching the surface. I know, and I'm still in shock. As you should be. Now, having two wonderful children with visions of predicting the future, you would think maybe, maybe that might make Buck a little bit of a better father. But no. He would still go on to beat the girls frequently. And also, apparently, according to Victoria, when she tells her tale, her father would frequently starve both her and Tennessee while they're on tour in order to make them perform better for the paying crowds. So no, I think he just got worse. And unfortunately for the girls, this behavior, the tourings and their vision would continue for the following four to five years being exploited by their father to make money for the family. At this time, Victoria is now 14 years old and very unfortunately has come down with very high fever as well as apparently rheumatism, which I thought was a little odd for a 14-year-old. So while Victoria is sick in bed with a very high fever and apparent rheumatism, she claims that she's also having conversations with her deceased sisters. Now, this could be part of the visions that she's having, but she says that she had full-on conversations with her dead sisters who came to visit her. So maybe this is a foretelling that she may be dying soon. So her parents, wanting to her to get better as quickly as possible, or at least on her dad's end so that she can go back out touring and making money, her mom and dad go out into town and find a doctor, a man named Canning Woodhall. His first name is Canning. Not Channing, Canning. I, I got it. I just what <laughs> the heck. Unusual first name. And he is 28 years old. And he comes, now keep in mind also back then, doctors made house calls. You didn't go to the doctor. The doctor would usually come to you. Canning Woodhall came to Victoria's home and prescribed her a remedy of fresh air and exercise. And he comes to see her, takes her out and walks around town, making sure that she's getting her fresh air and exercise. And after some time, when she starts to get better, he asks her to go on a date with him to the 4th of July fair. That same night, he walks her home. Now, I, I don't have specific information of how long they had known each other up until this point. I'm going to probably guess a few weeks, but a few weeks could be two, three, six. I don't know. And how frequently he visited, I don't know. I'm getting a very bit of Carl Tanzler with this one. After their quote-unquote date at this 4th of July fair, Woodhull walks Victoria home. And when he drops her off, he quote, tells her, my little puss, as in pussycat, tell your father and mother I want you for a wife. Yes, you heard that correct. I'm sorry, first he calls her a pussycat. 
then he says tell your father and mother i want you for a wife and he's Uh, twice her age twice her age and he's known her for a few weeks very likely wow uh dude why don't you go tell her parents that you want to marry her oh i think he may have also done that as well now roxy was all for the marriage buck was not roxy saw canning as a way for victoria to escape her abusive father buck wanted to keep on exploiting her victoria and canning would actually eventually elope together and later on when asked about her life victoria would recall that her marriage was an escape from her family that's fair he's a doctor too an actual doctor but not necessarily a good doctor. <laughs> they are not one in the same thing. That is true. Mm-mm. Oh, oh, I mean, even today, no. I said they are not. Yeah, no, I'm saying that, back then specifically, because you could claim you were a doctor, but not actually be one. Nowadays, you can't do that, and you can still be an awful doctor. Yeah. Unfortunately for Victoria, Canning Woodhull was not the catch she may have hoped for. I can understand I, why. Oh, no, no, you don't. Okay. After the marriage, she very, very quickly, keep in mind, she's 15 years old now. And that it, it, they, they held off getting married until she turned 15. Very quickly after the marriage, found out that her new husband was not only just a heavy drinker but also a heavy womanizer okay Mm -hmm. and he was seen often sleeping overnight at various brothels around town now keeping in mind that's not exactly problematic too much for victoria because again she's raised with three love and believes that though monogamous monogamy can be kind of one thing but i should also have the freedom to go out and sleep with whoever i want whenever i want that's the environment she was raised in so it's not exactly it sounds bad but for her it's still not completely off from what she was raised with yeah but can she do that but no the men could do that the women couldn't that was the whole that's the whole point of where this is going eventually yeah that's what i thought no, you, you that that's that okay, sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> now, the upside to living with Canning Woodhull, that he wasn't a very good doctor, and he was a drunkard and constantly visiting brothels. The upside for Victoria is that he didn't feed her or exploit her. So she that had that made a difference. Made a big difference. Now, by the time she was 18, four years, three or four years later, the couple moved from Ohio to Chicago. That very same year, she finds herself pregnant. And this is where we see Canning's real behavior come out, in my opinion. Okay. So the baby is due. Canning, knowing how to deliver babies, delivers their child. That's not a bad thing, but immediately, as soon as she's given birth to the baby, 
her half-drunken doctor husband immediately runs out and disappears for several days, leaving her having given birth at home with a brand new baby. What a great guy. Yeah, uh, it's about to get worse. During this, vi- this particular time as well, literally having just given birth, Victoria also again comes down with a very high fever and fears that she's dying. Her mother actually comes to visit her. And when she asks her mom, how did you know to come? She tells Victoria that she was instructed by her guides that Victoria needed her to come. So after a week, Canning finally returns and they decided to name their new son Byron after Lord Byron. Yep. That may be, that will be a topic for another time when we talk about Byron mania, but I'm not doing that today. Now, keeping in mind, the, the father is a consistent drunk. Now, unfortunately, very likely due to the father's consistent drinking, Byron was mentally delayed. Or as, at least at the time, they would have said imbecile or something along those lines. Though Byron would grow up, he would have the mental capacity of like a four-year-old. And apparently, he also never had teeth. And he couldn't, he never learned, he was never capable of actual verbal communication and communicated just by grunt noises. That's a lot of reliance on parents then. And one of your parents is a drunk. Who's never there. Well, not necessarily. He just wasn't there after delivering the child. Basically, who's never there. Sort of, I guess. He's out at days out at brothels and stuff yeah yeah i suppose so not too long after byron's birth victoria and canning both realize they're also very low on funds probably due to canning's splurging them on prostitutes in 1849 we have the california gold rush so the couple decides to move out to california as did many many people victoria Firstly, takes up a post as a cigar girl, but very soon left the position due to all the physical, well, at least all the, uh, the abuse the men at the company would you know, use on the women. So after very quickly quitting that job, she focuses on sewing and making costumes for a theater troupe in the area. And while there, one of the actresses named Josie Mansfield, who becomes a very good friend of Victoria's, sees Victoria's potential talent as an actress and ends up encouraging her to try the stage. I've got some numbers for you. So not only does Victoria try acting, she also becomes a successful actress for the time. And as a seamstress, she was making $3 a day. And when she got into acting, she went from $3 a day to $52 a day, which is a very obviously large increase. And today's money, that would be equivalent of $111 a day to $1,924 a day. 
you go from just over $100 to just shy of $2,000. Acting has always paid well. Yes, it does. As long as you're successful at it, it pays well. Yes. So she does that for a little while. And apparently one of the things that the, the theater troupe would do is after the show for the evening, they would go out drinking and partying. And as an additional way for the women to make money, they would sleep with the men and prostitute themselves as well. But also back then, prostitutes and actresses were more or less the same, depending on your reputation. Because we're so good at this. It's not like it's not been going on for centuries by this point. She's so good at this thing called life. Humans, weird. (laughs) So at this point, Victoria is a fairly successful actress on the stage, but still having to raise Byron. Canning has now not only become addicted to alcohol, he's now heavily addicted to opium. And eventually, Victoria becomes completely fed up with having to look after both of them because she's now the one making money for everything. She has to look after her drunkard, now drug-addicted husband and her mentally impaired child. So and feed them and everything and clean the house as well and 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 then now have a career as an actress. And and you know, I literally in my in my notes right after this, I was like, stress, it's a killer. Oh my gosh. That's a good one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I give her a ha and a hi-ya. <laughs> Such a great movie. I mean, it's Bartok. Right? Gotta love Bartok. He's cute. If you don't know what movie we're talking about, we are talking about Anastasia. Continuing, one night, while Victoria's on stage, literally in the middle of a performance, she has a vision. And in this vision, she sees her mother and younger sister, Tennessee, calling her and insisting that she comes back home. And as soon as the vision ends, Victoria immediately dashes off the stage, goes home, packs up her stuff, and moves back to Ohio with her son, Byron. She doesn't even finish the play. And when she arrives home and tells her mother of the vision she had, her mother responds with, oh, I told Tennessee to call you home. Because now apparently Tennessee can't just have visions she can have telepathic communication. Now, the weird thing about Tennessee is that, at least according to the source that I have for most of my notes, which comes from the Profiles and Eccentricity podcast, um, their two-parter on Victoria Woodhull, which is a fantastic podcast. And there's so much that I'm actually skipping over that they have in their podcast, and I'm going through a lot. But one thing that about the sister Tennessee is that though she is having these visions she may not always believe in her gift and that she thinks that she's a fraud and she's making them up mostly because her father is probably telling her to now victoria believes that she actually has gifts and tennessee thinks that she's just faking her gifts so 
it's really interesting dynamic between the two sisters but it would literally turn out that Tennessee also has the same gifts as Victoria even if she doesn't always believe in the, the visions that she has it's very interesting keeping in mind that Victoria made a lot of money from acting or at least fairly adequate for the time when she moves back to Ohio she doesn't go back to acting she goes back and takes up her previous life of spiritualism, spiritual healing, and going from town to town preaching, which did not make them a lot of money. And by this time, Tennessee is now 14 years old. And during Victoria's time in California, their father had set Tennessee up as a business, not with Tennessee, but exploiting her even further. He sets up hours for Tennessee because she is a business, not so. And, and an ad, which I don't have, but it'll be on the Profiles and Eccentricity podcast, and it's a little more explicit, uh, that her father runs ads for this business using Tennessee. And her hours, her daily hours are from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. And I mean, the business hours... If anyone wants to come and see and pay the $1 reading to talk with Tennessee and get visions and speak to spirits, you could come see Tennessee anywhere between 8 a.m. and 9 p.m. And that does not mean that Victoria or Tennessee ever had any breaks. And remember, her father was not above starving his children. Utterly awful. Just terrible. Yes. And if you remember Buck's life elixir, it's now now no longer called Buck's life elixir. Now that Tennessee is the forefront of the business, he is selling the elixir along with uh, Tennessee's readings of people, which her father has now also taught her how to con people into giving fake readings which is why probably uh, Tennessee does not believe that she's giving real readings. But the elixir is now called Miss Tennessee's Magnetic Life Elixir. Wow, that turned from Buck's Life Elixir into a super long name that didn't change that much. Uh, The ingredients didn't change at all. It's just that he rebranded it because his daughter is now the business or, you know, the forefront of his business. No, I get it. I'm just saying not much change. Nope, not at all. So now when Victoria turns 22, she runs off, having dealt with her family some more, runs off to Indianapolis and actually opens her own business, a spiritual healing business from a rented room and a hotel. And it didn't take off as well as she had hoped given the spiritualistic and spiritual movements of the time so instead she decides to transform her hotel room into a brothel it sells all right yeah now it would go on for a a little bit where she would hire some women and then they would have like share the rooms and everything eventually the hotel found out didn't like that and kicked everyone out and by the time that this happened 
Victoria found out that she's seven months pregnant with Canning's child. And the baby would be born in April of 1861. And if you thought Canning was bad before, he's the first child. Now he's drunk and addicted to opium. And again, probably not a very good doctor. Yay. So, yeah. Canning delivers the second child. But during the delivery, he botched the birth a little bit by not properly cutting off the umbilical cord and tying it off, which isn't exactly horrific, but it's not good. Again, at this, like he is full on like opiate drug addicted and drunk while he's doing this, not sober by any means. And so he botches the umbilical cord and tying it off and leaves the baby in a pillow next to Victoria, who is now passed out. Or some say asleep. I'm not sure how you sleep through giving birth. I assume she probably passed out. But she's not conscious. And Canning places the baby next to Victoria. And when Victoria wakes up, the pillow next to her is full of blood. Realizing what's gone on, because as soon as Canning botches the delivery and puts the baby on the pillow next to an unconscious wife he again nopes right on out of there immediately when victoria comes to she realizes that her husband's not there and realizes what's gone wrong with the delivery so she literally chews through the umbilical cord and then ties off her own infant and then it gets worse. Victoria now realizes she can't move. Like the delivery must have been quite difficult. She can't get up. So the only thing she can do is grab a chair from nearby, pull off one of the chair arms and begins beating it on the wall to alert a neighbor. Eventually one of her neighbors has to break in to come help her. And they're able to, like Victoria's not doing so well. But everyone lives and everyone does well. And the daughter is then named, this is a fantastic name. I don't know where she came up with it. Zulu Maud. Often, often, or, or, or occasionally also referred to as Zula. That really is quite a name. It's quite a name. Yeah. I don't know where she got Zulu from, but Maud wasn't a, a common name back then, but Zulu is interesting. I liked that. Three days after giving birth to Zula, or Zulu, Victoria sees Canning stumbling down the street to their house, completely drunk and off his mind on drugs, and then sees him breaking into the house across the street, thinking that it was their house. It is at this point she realizes now would be a good time to divorce him. And just like many women at the time who find themselves not only divorced, but also with a single mom with children, you go back home to your family. And at this time, little sister Utica is now in the healing business and her and Tennessee have been healing as well as also being pimped out by their father. So Utica is... Now, also, she's the one who is like five, six, seven, and addicted to laudanum, 
And now she's also being used as a prostitute by her father. Great, great. And Utica, if, if uh, Victoria's 18, Utica probably can't be more than 12 or 13 by this point. It's terrible. I'm sorry, she's 22, so she might be about 14, but it's terrible. Like just one child after the other, you're just gonna utilize every single one and use them like that. That's, that's a really terrible sperm donor. I mean, there's so many words you can use and none of them adequately sum up fuck. Yeah, and then of course it's about to get worse. As is the, um, the story here for the first part, unfortunately, everything just seems to get worse and worse. In 1861, the family ends up being able to afford to own a boarding house, a rather large boarding house for the time with several rooms. And here the entire family lived. Everyone's husband, everyone's mom, you know, the mom, the dad, all the children, the children's husbands, the children's children, all the grandchildren. They're also renting out rooms as brothels. And Buck is using one of the rooms as a medical room so that his daughters can use it as a healing room. And yeah, that, yeah. So they would also use the backyard of the boarding house to continue creating their elixirs. Now, by this point, they've gone from Buck's Life Elixir to Miss Tennessee's Magnetic Life Elixir. And now they have a new elixir, which is not using the same ingredients. And you will not believe the ingredients in this one. This one is made of sheep fat. Yeah, not, too, not too uncommon. Perfume, definitely not uncommon when having a nice smell with it. And lye, corrosive lye. Do you want to know why? I've got a quote from Buck as to why he put lye in his new elixir. Oh, goody. Yeah. Given Buck's reputation. When asked why he put lye in it, Buck immediately responds with, I think when his daughters asked them, he responded with, there are only three ways to cure cancer. Again, this is 1861. So we obviously don't have the medical advancements we have today. So he says, there are only three ways to cure cancer. A, cut it out. B, poison it with arsenic. Or C, burn it. I choose to burn it. Now, at one point, a patient is seen into the room for Tennessee to heal, and Buck brings in this new lye elixir, tonic, and the patient has breast cancer. So their treatment burn her breasts off ouch with lie no very much no 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 after the patient is finished with her treatment she goes home and apparently she's like that i don't think that helped and i'm just gonna wait for death because I, that that, uh, that didn't help. That did not cure my cancer. And then she sees a, a review and the, the local paper with her name on it stating that Tennessee is the most amazing healer I've ever had. And the elixir they gave me is absolutely wonderful and completely cured of my cancer. 
She never gave that review, obviously. And she reports the family. And apparently some marshals, from what I understand, came in, broke into the house and to the boarding house, not just the medical room, but the entire boarding house, and described the conditions in the boarding house as being worse than Andersonville. And for those not informed about Andersonville, it is one of the worst, worst run, disease ridden, highest death rate prisons in all of Civil War America. And this boarding house was described as being worse than that. People were living in their own excrement. In some, of, in some of the boarding rooms, people were living in their own excrement. How does anyone want to live like that? Even just, mm, no. I don't have an answer for that one. Tennessee is quickly charged with murder. Even though she didn't actually kill the patient, it's, you got to put some charge on her. And it's not like they are going to tell the dad you're charged with murder because you're the one exploiting your daughter. No, your daughter's the healer. We're going to, we're going to charge her with murder. You're, you're, you're just the father. What's crazy is that the lawyer who was supposed to sentence them or at least prosecute them. I'm not sure how that worked back then. Turns out he was in love with Tennessee. And before he was supposed to write his charge up, he told the family ahead of time that he had to do this and gave them notice so they could skip town. Yikes. Yeah. So after this, Victoria, wanting to get away from her crazy family, tries to move out to Chicago, back to Chicago. And here she opens up another spiritual store, tries again. And not long after she moves to Chicago, her family moves in with her because they have now been run out of Cincinnati by a prominent Frothel owner that they were trying to be in rivalry with. And the family had to move out of Cincinnati and decided to move in with Victoria in Chicago. No. It's a very common theme in this entire story, part one and part two. And that does not ruin anything in part two. Don't worry about them. Tired of her family, obviously, she hoofs it out of Chicago and then moves to St. Louis. And she creates an alias and goes by the name of Madame Holland and tries to become a brothel owner. And it's here she meets a man named Colonel James Harvey Blood, who is a Civil War colonel, uh, now since... Um, honorably discharged but with the interesting last name of blood and if anyone's wondering why that might also sound familiar i will probably very likely be doing an episode on captain blood from the reign of charles ii at some point don't worry about that that's a great story <sighs> not long after victoria moves to st louis and their family gets run out of chicago because they got run out of tennessee and then they got run out of ohio 
<laughs> or at least Homer, Ohio. There's there's clearly a repetition here. Victoria, no, sorry, Tennessee goes off to live with Victoria. And again, Victoria is now divorced from Canning Woodhull. And she and Captain or Captain Blood, I'm probably gonna say that, Colonel Blood have essentially now at this point kind of become inseparable. Colonel Blood was married when they met, but realized that Victoria was the person he's supposed to be with. So when Tennessee comes to live with Victoria and Colonel Blood, the three of them sort of run off together um, as in like the couple plus their sister, <laughs> nothing extra on that. When Victoria turns 28, she and Colonel Blood officially marry. The strange thing about their relationship is that two years later, they would divorce, sort of. It wasn't a separation divorce. It was just an official protest, actually, that it was a protest regarding the confinements of marriage of women at the time. And Victoria was very much like a lot of women at the time were for equal rights and free will and their lives. So, 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 mm -hmm. so, so wait, I just want to clarify, she, they, they got a, a, an actual divorce, signed the papers, but they didn't really separate. They just did it as protest. Correct. They have now have a common law marriage rather than an official legal marriage. But the great thing for Victoria and with this relationship, Colonel Blood was fantastic to Victoria. And they would be together for the next 20 years, which is great for her. Finally, something positive. Well, I'm not quite done, but almost, yes. And it also helped with their relationship that both of them were very much into spiritualism and both of them also very much into the free love movement. And 1867, on a vacation, if you will, through the city of Pittsburgh, Victoria has a vision. And in this vision, she sees a spirit in a white toga. And this would be Demosthenes. And he tells her, your work is about to begin. All these years, we have been preparing you for a great mission. Go to New York to 17 Great Jones Street. There you will find a house ready and waiting for you. The spirit then proceeded to show her images of the house in her vision. And after the vision was over, she took the advice and her and Victoria, sorry, her in Tennessee and Colonel Blood all traveled and moved to New York. And that is where I will leave off on part one. That's a lot. That's just part and one. And one really messed up. Part one. Part one. It, you know, this is in a sort of sense that kind of reminds me of the Sparrow Wars where part one is uh, cr crazy, ridiculous, unimaginable, and yet utterly fascinating. And then part two is like part two of the Sparrow Wars. Same crazy but in a much more positive way. That, that was pretty insane. 
wait till part two because again I don't I've not told you the reason why Victoria Woodhull is so famous get ready for part two your mind will be blown oh lord no no it's it's really like if if her childhood was so awful her adult life was completely the opposite let's just I'm giving you that little heads up okay on that note it'll happen in so many ways you won't expect all right (laughs) on that note that'll do for this episode of history explains it all I need to go sleep sleep on this and pray that I truly understand it for tomorrow (laughs) and remember it I'm still about it so That'll do for this episode, and uh, we hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. Bye. Bye.